if you give people the right set of conditions, they know how to perform. And by perform, I don't mean act. I mean just like operate themselves. And if I can create these right sets of conditions for different forms of operation, then we have a project, right? And then something happens. And I don't know necessarily what it will be, but I know a little bit how it will feel. Welcome to episode five of Magic Praxis, a podcast in which artists talk to artists in their studios. I'm Kate Haas, and this is Clarity Haynes. In this episode, we're delighted to welcome Sharon Loudon as our guest host. Loudon is an artist, educator, advocate for artists, and editor of the well-known book series, Living and Sustaining a Creative Life. The artist as culture producer, her latest, was recently released by Intellect Books and the Chicago University Press. Sharon talks with Chloe Bass, who is one of 40 visual artists who contributed essays to the book. Sharon asks Chloe about the nuts and bolts of her life as an artist, including how she creates opportunities, navigates social relationships, and sustains herself financially. Bass is a conceptual artist working in the field of social practice, spanning the genres of performance, situation, publication, and installation. One of the ways she works is to conduct artistic research by temporarily joining other people's communities in such places as Cleveland, New Orleans, Omaha, and Greensboro. The conversation was recorded at the Center for Book Arts in New York City, where Bass is an artist in residence. Thank you so much to Clarity and Kate for having me guest host this conversation with Chloe Bass. And I'm very excited to have this moment with Chloe Bass, or these moments with Chloe, because I'm very curious about Chloe. (laughs) I wanted to know more about her. I would like to uh, understand how her work and the practice of her work intertwines with who she is and get to know her further. And I hope everyone listening to this will get to know her further by these answers to these questions, which I think will be wide-ranging. So thank you, Chloe. Thank you for asking me to be here, and thanks to Clarity and Kate for having us. So I first want to start out with this question. After looking at videos on your website, which I really enjoyed, and I particularly loved the Department of Local Affairs at Bemis, which I thought was really quite wonderful. Um, Why is it that you like to create intimate places with strangers? And does it have something to do with being an only child? So the thing about intimacy is that it's generally how we get the most interesting information ever, right? Like there's a reason that people wanna keep falling in love and there's a reason that it's a compelling process even though we also know that it oftentimes results in pain either in the long or short term. And it's because we get these things that feel incredibly resonant to us. And it gives us the information that we kind of always wished we could ask, but there's no way to ask it. So you just have to kind of be around it and sit in it and and live in it and learn it. And so I don't necessarily want to fall in romantic love with strangers, but I do want to create conditions where we can get that quality of information and learn about each other so that we can live better together. So I'm really compelled by this this use of intimacy for information gathering. But it seems like you're always observing it. Like, especially with that project in particular, you stood back from it because you're not a resident of Omaha, but you are the president of 
the companies, I want to say it, or maybe it's a nonprofit organization. It's an agency. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that you had these teenagers, right? They were, uh, they facilitated and they, they called the information. They went out into the world and gathered all the information. They were your gatherers. So you were always, I think, you were observing from the outside. So how does one, you, um, being the observer, reach that intimacy? I don't know that in Omaha I was supposed to. My goal was to give that intimacy to Omaha natives between other Omaha natives, mm -hmm. right? And I also did the project in Bed-Stuy mm -hmm. through the Laundromat Project, where mm -hmm. I was the artist in residence also in 2014. And there, because I am a resident of Bed-Stuy, I was very intimately engaged with the people and collecting information from them directly, and it became a much more an active exchange with me as a person instead of with me as a facilitator of an idea, right? So at any point, I'm kind of following my own conceptual rigor of a project to get to the thing that matters most, which is creating a thing that people can point to later and say, that was different for me from usual, and I would like more of that, and I would like that again. And I would like to find a way in my own life to create conditions to get to that level of intimacy um, without me, Chloe Bass, the artist or the project, being there. So ultimately, it doesn't even matter if the project fails as long as it produces a condition that people can remember and want to get back to. So two questions. One from your theater background. Well, there'll be more than two questions, but these <laughs> right now, two questions. Do you think that in theater, that essentially like an actor being becoming somebody else is really like a a vehicle to deliver information, to inspire, to share knowledge. You're doing that in so many ways by setting up that office, quite visual, even to the mugs and the stationery and the pens in the mugs. Everything so set up in advance. And then the criteria by which everyone is participating and you're being the outside. Do you feel like that that is close to theater? Do you feel like in that same way? And do you feel like sometimes that you are the actor? I feel like it's definitely close to theater. And as I kind of made my entry into the visual arts world from the theatrical world, my impulse was always that um, I wanted to make theater, but that I wanted to make theater that people could touch or that touched people more directly instead of just this relationship where people sit in an audience and watch something happen on a stage, which for me can be quite resonant, but oftentimes, right, like isn't. Whereas experiences that we have with our own bodies and minds and feelings are almost always resonant in one way or another. So I wanted to get to that condition where people felt more directly implicated and affected by the work. But I, I don't think that I necessarily think of myself as an actor as much as a director. Mm -hmm. um, and my training is in directing and creative and critical theatrical writing. And um, I've never written a play since undergrad, so there's that. But, you know, in terms of, like, the way that we think about criticism of live um, events or live ideas, that's informed a lot of my other types of writing, and certainly the directing practice has informed my art making. There is a place where if you give people the right set of conditions, they know how to perform. And by perform, I don't mean act, I mean just like operate themselves. And if I can create these right sets of conditions for different forms of operation, then we have a project, right? And then something happens, and I don't know necessarily what it will be, but I know a little bit how it will feel. It seems like your work is a combination, or these projects are a combination of a lot of control in the beginning, 
like setting up maps, criteria, um, structures, if you will. And then for chaos, so you can't really create chaos without order anyway, right? Yeah, or like people shouldn't really, you know, like trash the form of painting unless they know a little bit about painting's history. Right? There are all these ways that I think people are trying to break out of a mold of what they perceive to be regular or constricting. And that's great. But it helps if you know what the um, kind of boundaries or endpoints of that constriction are. And if you don't really know what they are, then you're kind of lashing out against nothing. It's just a feeling. Are all of your participants knowing the criteria and knowing those boundaries to either resist against or to feel comfort within? They know their boundaries. They don't know mine. You know, it's interesting to me because you hold back some things for yourself, I think, in these. How do you decide what to hold back? And then why do you hold back? I know why. Um, how is harder to answer. I'm going to answer why first. Okay. Because ultimately, right, these experiences are only part of the art. And I do make other stuff out of it, right? I make works that are only mine, that are not collaborative, that come from this culling of experience and information and all this other great stuff that happens with participants. So when I hold back, it's so that I have material to work with more freely without feeling like I'm just steamrolling over these people who generously gave me their time and energy and feelings. <laughs> um, how I select what to hold back is yes. a more instinctive process. I can't think of a direct studio metaphor to apply, but it's maybe like, how do you know when an abstract painting is done? Right, you know when it's done. Um, my mother's a painter, I've watched her know when things are done. But I don't think that I, from the outside, could, could say. I can see that it's finished, but I don't know why. Um, and it's kind of a little bit more like that, of, of as the artist, I know that there are certain types of things that are not gonna go in and other things that will happen accidentally that I'll also have to work with, but it's the process of like making those decisions that informs it as an artwork, even in the experiential period. Do you ever, I know that you must, you definitely considered the community in Omaha, and then in Cleveland, you did as well. Now in Cleveland, when you were reading responses, Right, I believe that there were responses, correct? Or it's information that you call from the community. I had experiences with people. I met with 16 strangers who mm -hmm. were from Craigslist. Not entirely, but most of them were from Craigslist. Um, they were all strangers to me. And we had experiences that they actually um, had to propose to me, which I accepted. And then afterwards, I sent them follow-up surveys and thank you notes and a bunch of other ways of getting people to respond to you in the future. So I had their actual lived time and photographs that we had taken of that time, although they're very sketchy photographs. They're not really documentation so much as like little things that happened. And then I also had their written responses to, in the survey, which were in a very particular format. And then I also had any incidental conversation that we had afterwards, because a lot of them did really want to talk. Um, and those were not recorded, but were kind of remembered by me. And then I had whatever had happened to me or that I had observed. So all of those things together kind of became the basis of the photographic and text series that made up the project. So after these projects, what happens with the dialogue with these people. Um, do you follow up or do they email you and say, hey, can we have a coffee? Can we hang out? Do any of them ever grow into a friendship or not? So Hyperallergic commissioned me to do a series about my time in Omaha and then to do another series about my time in Greensboro, which were kind of like my journals, but um, 
better written. Um, and in the Greensboro series, I actually admitted that when I do these projects, I fall in love with everybody who participates in them. But it's a very temporary kind of love, right? And in terms of keeping in touch afterwards, I really leave that up to the people themselves. I write them when the project is being shown or if something happens specifically related to the project, but I don't reach out to them personally. But if they reach out to me personally, I do always um, write back. Uh, there have been a couple of times when somebody said I'm coming to New York, I'll meet them for a coffee or a drink. I make oh, myself great. as available as they ask me to be. But I don't try to maintain them as my friends, mostly because it's uh, kind of exhausting. Um, and especially because you work with people in these ways that are false in terms of time, where you have very intense experiences very quickly, like summer camp. Um, as opposed to like the more ongoing process of living with or working with somebody or making them your friend in real life, right? There's no sort of time limits to that. So then later when you have them encounter you in your real life where you don't have that magical time world, it becomes a very different relationship. I don't consider them my community because a community of people, and I've been a community organizer also in a mm -hmm. different life, a community of people is somebody that I am committing to work with in the real world, in our real time, towards something more tangible. And these people are people who have chosen to participate in a project that I'm doing in a way that we know is very meaningful, but ultimately like not quite real, particularly in terms of time, but also in terms of how it interfaces with everything else in their life. So it'll give them something that they can carry over into their life, especially because I'm doing it in the place where they are instead of the place where I am geographically, but that the project itself is that conduit back into a better reality. It isn't in and of itself the better reality. I think inevitably these projects that you do, they may wake up a community in a different way. They're contributing to a, I'm going to use the word community as far as in Omaha, not your community, but let's say a community. And inevitably you're leaving something with them to that contributes to that space. Where do you think that you can fill a need for that? In, I think every community needs something like that. But in this day and age where we're in a place where there's a lot of unrest and a lot of conflict, right? Um, a lot of people thinking very different things in this country, just to be very general. Um, how, do you ever think about those things as far as going into a place that to sort of I don't want to say shake it up, but inevitably artists do. You know, when we go into a place, we inject something. At least I wanted to be able to hope for that and in a happy way. I believe that we do. We contribute to the infrastructure of everybody's well-being, the infrastructure of culture being part of our infrastructure of living. So when you think about some places that you haven't been, that you want to go to, to be able to inject these projects to create space and dialogue with strangers, where do you think? I don't really have a specific like geographic wish list. Um, because ultimately, I don't know that I really wanted to go to any of the places that I went to. <laughs> oh my God, right? I'm so surprised by that. I had a great time there though. <laughs> I'm not saying that I didn't appreciate the project oh, or the sure. opportunity, but like, I, they, none of these places were places that I was like, you know where I really wanna go? Right, right. It just didn't happen that way. I'm finally doing a project in New Orleans, which is like actually a place I really like to go to, and it feels like a huge step up. My friends used to refer to my life as the Terrible America Tour. Um, yeah, so, and I liked the Terrible America Tour, That's but funny. it was difficult. It was really difficult, especially as I'm a native New Yorker, right? Like, right. 
I am not supposed to know about anything past New Jersey. <laughs> so what am I doing in Ohio? So in a way, though, that leaves me open to go anywhere. Right. And I think it's always been kind of great. Like, I've also done projects like this in Turkey, right? It hasn't just been in, you know, Nebraska and Ohio and North Carolina and, sure, sure. and wherever else. I have done them in Germany and Turkey and uh, Switzerland and the UK and France. Um, and I did a sort of more casual project that I don't ever really talk about that took place in Singapore and Thailand and Cambodia. So it's sort of whatever comes up, I have to be open to that. And you know, in terms of how artists can shake up a space or create dialogue or make change, uh, I am fabricating a project now that's in very early planning discussions with two people who you know and like very much, um, who I'm not gonna reference for this podcast, but it's a surprise for everybody uh, where not only will we go throughout the country just for the purpose of having conversations, but that I'll actually be training people in some of my methods so that I don't have to be the only person enacting these dialogues and figuring out how we can actually talk to people who are different from us. Because I really think that empathy, like relying on political participation through empathy is so dangerous and is like total bullshit and is basically exhausting. But if we're gonna not rely on empathy anymore, we need another path forward. And so I'm trying to use my work. And frankly, like some of the experiences that I've had with people who were my participants, who I generously uh, fell in love with temporarily, I didn't even like them, right? But I loved them. And so figuring out how to kind of recreate some of those conditions, I think would be very valuable right now for the country. I think that's great. What is the way in if it's not empathy? I don't know that there's a single word for it that I can come up with. What I would ask people to do is to be a little bit more curious about one another, rather than to presume that we have this shared place of emotional understanding that tells us everything we need to know, right? And I find that a lot comes out of good questioning. We're experiencing that here, but that you can also say that that happens in schools, right? I teach in an art school and I teach in a public school. Uh, it's, I teach in an art department of a public school. And just getting my students to think critically is much more valuable to me than getting them to be artists. If they're artists, they'll be artists anyway, mm -hmm. but most of them aren't critical thinkers. Mm -hmm. So if we can use our department to do that, that's kind of perfect for me. But I think that has to do fundamentally, which I think sometimes artists forget, is that by naturally thinking of the other person first, you automatically have questions which start conversation, which then create spaces for action to move things forward. But sometimes when that doesn't happen and there's no questions, it stays on the other side within one person, and then things do not grow. Anyway, I think that's great. That's, an, that's a tangent. But well, I'm, I just, yeah, I mean, this idea of, like, artists as stupid, selfish weirdos is, like, not, it's not interesting. Like, don't you want to be better than that? Don't you want to be better than being a stupid, selfish weirdo? I'm not saying that, <laughs> I don't, I'm not saying that artists are generally stupid or selfish. I'm just saying that naturally some artists who stay in their studios and they're consumed by, by their own truths, that they're trying to... Uh, share through whatever medium that they're choosing is, is sometimes we get lost in that it's all collaborative at the end of the day. Yeah. And so I think that that's extremely important 
to then think of that other person first in the reality of having that exchange and sharing those truths, which I think that you do. Living in the world is a collaboration. Absolutely. Right? It just is. And I, you know, maybe sometimes I wish I could get out of that, but I can't. So there you go. We'll return to Sharon Loudon's conversation with Chloe Bass in a moment. You're listening to Magic Praxis. To find out more about Sharon Loudon, her new book, and Chloe Bass, please visit our website, magicpraxis.com. We want to thank you for all your support. If you like us, please review us and rate us on iTunes. Share us with your friends on social media using the hashtag tripod, T-R-Y-P-O-D. And if you have questions, ideas, or feedback, let us know. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And now back to the interview. So in uh, The Artist is Culture Producer, you wrote an essay. Can I read from your essay? Sure. It says, as an artist, I can meet with people one-on-one or in in small groups at my studio and beyond rather than spending my days coordinating dozens to thousands of people at a time. I have more time to be curious about things, which means I write more, spending time every day working on words as a part of my practice. I clarify my thoughts and questions about artistic practice through teaching, both during visiting artist appointments and as a professor. And instead of staying home and focusing all my efforts on two square miles of Brooklyn, I now base my life in New York, but have the flexibility to allow my work to take me to other places. So essentially that's what you were saying before. But I would love to talk about teaching as an extension of your work. I'm not, I don't like to say practice because I don't think an artist's work is a practice. I actually think it's a life. So that you chose teaching to have as a part of your life, how is that incorporated in, let's say, these projects? Or how does that help you formulate these kind of projects that you've done, let's say, in Omaha, Turkey, Cleveland, et cetera? So I have to be honest and say, you said when I chose teaching, teaching chose me. Interesting. Um, I was not planning to be in the academic job market. And in fact, officially, I have never been. Yet, I have a full-time position in an art department. (laughs) Uh, It is not a tenure-track job, um, and I've been really enjoying it, and it's been certainly, like, far and away the best, most rewarding job I've ever had. But I'm the child of two people who are teachers. Uh, My dad is a philosophy professor. He's also a psychoanalyst, but he's a philosophy professor. And my mother was an art teacher. And so I always was kind of brought up in this very pedagogical way, right? And getting back to what you mentioned before, that I'm an only child, imagine that you have like the um, scrutiny and compassion of two teachers looking at you every day of your entire life, right? So the ways that I understand best how to operate are always a little bit motivated or structured by school. And I think that teaching came to find me because there are things that I do in my work that also work very well in a classroom. There's like a pedagogical component because I am trying to get people to learn to live better together, right? And a school might do that as well or wish to do that as well. So I see why there's a natural relationship between these two things. Um, I don't use my students in my work and I don't do projects with my students. Um, I'm there for them. And it's very beneficial for me, and I can sort of shape our classroom based on what I'm curious about, but it's not what I'm doing necessarily in that moment in my work. It's more what I'm curious about as a person who's collaborating on being in the world. What kind of things that do you do with them that you say that come out of curiosity? 
ultimately, my goal, because I will not always be there for them, Mm -hmm. So my goal is that they learn very quickly how to see who's in a room with them and how to assess what each person can offer them that's in that room and what they can offer each person that's in that room. So it's almost like doing a so social resource map of everybody who's around so that they can um, feel more engaged and kind of happy and together when they're in groups, which is something that they're going to have to experience for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that art is a conduit to a lot of things, right? But in the very best moments, it's also just a reminder that we're constantly engaging generatively and creatively with all kinds of things that are around us. And I want them to have that ability to focus in that way and to really be the experts of being themselves. And I don't know other departments that allow them to be the experts in being themselves. I tell them every day. That's very generous. What do you think about... Um with your students just getting out into the world in this world right now, what do you think that for young artists particularly, that they, that they can do, I, I hate to say this, it's so general, to make a difference. Um, let me break that down a little bit. To be a part more integral in society, to be able to make bridges to the public when it's, I think, right now is needed the most. And certainly, I would imagine the things that you're giving to them in the classroom is enabling them to do that anyway. But what are some of the things that you would like for them to do leaving college to be able to contribute to more integration to public and having culture be more present in this country? That's a really hard question. I do work with undergrads, but I mostly work with graduate students. Um, and for my graduate students, I have very specific things that I want them to be able to do, right? Because they're adults and they're going into this professionally. My undergrads maybe are not even in the art department, they're just in my class. Or they're in the art department, but who knows what they're gonna wind up doing, right? So what I want them to do is like go out and feel like they had a good time in college and they learned a lot of stuff and thought about a lot of things. That's really my only priority for them. Very cool. Uh, super easy, You're right? fun professor. I try to be fun. <laughs> My favorite thing right now, so I'm teaching a performance class this semester on Wednesday nights, and I, I think it's partially me and it's partially the timing of the class that every week I've had a kid be like, can I bring my friend? Oh. So, so we've had a lot of friends in our class, which makes me so happy. Um, but, you know, for my grad students... Right, I understand that they're coming to the MFA with a desire to be a professional something or other mm -hmm. that I can teach them, mm -hmm. right? And my hope is that what they can continue to do as artists is find creative ways of thinking around all the problems that we're producing as a society. Mm -hmm. I wrote about this on Facebook a couple weeks ago, but like, it is really, really terrible what the government is doing right now, but also, or and also, mm -hmm. we have always had a ton of things that our government did not make for us. And artists can continue to think about how we can have those things and how we can make those things. So that's really my hope for anybody who wants to do this long term is that you have the generosity of spirit and the ability to stubbornly persist that allows you to keep thinking of these solutions for the stuff that we feel is being taken away from us. How do you tell your students how, or how do you even share with other artists because it seems like you create opportunities for yourself fairly easily. And I love the fact, too, that um, especially looking at the video on your website about the project in Omaha. Oh, oh, no, I'm sorry. The project actually in Cleveland, the curator there also had a segment as far as the video. And I love the fact that 
you seem to be uh, connected to these venues, that you are aware of that collaboration, which I think is wonderful. How do you suggest for artists to create their own opportunities, as you do? You know, I do create my own opportunities, and I always have, because I'm an only child and a weird person who's not going to fit into a lot of traditional paths. I worked in publishing for 10 months, and my mom told me I could quit my job because it made me so sad uh, as a person, <laughs> and I did quit. But, you know, when you are that person, you extra specially have to create your own opportunities. And I feel like understanding who you really are and what you want to mm -hmm. get out of something is the primary thing that allows you to do that. Mm -hmm. So I know I'm a weirdo, right? And I'm comfortable with it. And there are ways that I'm always trying to learn and grow and improve. Um, I used to be a shy weirdo and now I'm not, right? I had to learn that. But the other thing is, realistically, I'm not doing it alone. And the main thing that I have is like four people who really love me, right? And you know who some of them are because that's how we met. And it's like if you have these four people in the world who really love you, who have more power and access than you or different power and access than you, you wind up being linked to all of these incredible conversations. And then what you don't say is, I never wanted to go to Omaha. What you say is, I would love to come to Omaha because I don't know what I'll find there. Correct. I think that's really good. So I, I would love to end this with just going back to your essay because okay. I loved it so much. The question is not whether to keep going or even precisely how to keep going, but what kind of reasonable expectations I can have for my current and future life. Getting into the art world through the side door, familiarity, location, organizational labor, and happenstance has been fun. I'm here because I feel I consistently have permission, the permission to change, at least on paper, what kind of artist I am, as long as my work continues to tell a clear and developing story. I feel I can continue to make my work fluidly without the obstacles of no. The question now is how to use that fluidity to increase stability. I may have to come here by accident, but by hook or by crook, I'm planning planning to stay. So by that, I love that, especially after what you just talked about. Um, how do you feel like you can continue to sustain your life as an artist? I mean, how are you doing that too, just fundamentally, practically, as far as moving forward? It sounds like these people around you who you've uh, your community, these four people, and maybe even beyond, give you that support. But what about just even as an artist, living as an artist today, how do you maintain that stability and to be able to keep sustaining as an artist? Well, I mean, there's, it's always a question of like what level of, of sustenance. Um, I am a financially frugal person. And I also have come to understand that a lot of what ruins most people's lives is real estate. So I would say like the least space that you can have is probably the best idea. So I don't have a studio outside of my home unless somebody gives it to me for the purposes of a specific project. Some people need that more than I do, but some people don't and they think that they're supposed to and I don't think it's a very good idea. Mm -hmm. um, I think also, right, the question is how do you have enough time and space to yourself to keep doing the thing that you're doing while also maintaining a public life and a job and a family and friends and living in a city that has nine million people? And that has been harder for me, especially in the past couple of months. Um, my public life has overtaken all of my other time. 
And I don't know what to do to get out of that, but I understand that I need to get out of that. And that maybe the way that we think about things is also a flexibility that school provides, right? You go to school for 10 months of the year and then you have these two months off. Or if you're in a university system as I am, I have three months off. And so it's the question of like how to just keep making my work work almost like a liquid instead of like a solid where a liquid will just bleed into any spaces that are available for it. And if I think of my practice and my life as liquid, I can probably do anything. It seems like that flexibility is essential, don't you think? I mean, and also what I'm getting from you too in your work is paying attention. You seem to be, I mean, some people don't, pay attention. So I think paying attention is really important, right? Because then you could take advantage of things that come your way if you know what they are to recognize them. And in order to do that, you have to know who you are, right? Would you agree with that? Definitely. Yeah, I think that is great. You have this fantastic uh, sense of confidence that yields towards strength. And yet within it, I feel a sense of vulnerability (laughs) that's all throughout it. And and then the idea of setting something up through these boundaries um, that you do that, and I actually don't know where they're coming out of or where that control, what that means for you, but then relinquishing that control and then having things happen from it and then being open to receive what happens takes a lot of courage and strength. I really do think that. You may not be thinking that, but do you, do you understand what I'm saying and do you feel like that's true? I do, Um, and I'm grateful to you for saying it. There is a lot of vulnerability inherent to what I do, and while it seems like I have all kinds of control over that, I don't really, Mm -hmm. right? And I can't really, because I'm working with real people to do real things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I appreciate that, and I appreciate their sense of vulnerability in doing so. So if I'm completely controlled, and they have to be the only ones being vulnerable, it's just like a huge lie. And I don't really want to do something that's a huge lie. There could be something interesting about that, but it's not where I'm headed right now. The truth is so important right now, more than ever. And I think that revealing truth takes a lot of courage. And I think that artists are leaders in that. And also I think artists bounce back from failure better than anybody. And certainly better comparatively to any other field. And so if you're thinking just even professionally, or I'm thinking professionally. So I feel like what you do is you go into a community, contribute to that community, leave with things in that community. And I always say, and I've written about this too, is that leaving seeds for trees to grow. And I think that that is what you do in your work. And I don't know if you're thinking of it that way, but I'm hoping that you can create forests in places that may not have ever had that exposure to you or to an artist, because I think that's so needed. So I'm going to be curious to see what happens when you go forward. And I'm hoping that you can have a wish list of places, at least in this country, that based on geography, because I think now more than ever, we need to have someone like you to come in and plant those seeds and then allow for them to be nurtured over time. Now, I know that you and I are going to Kansas. We're going to Wichita. And those people who are there in Wichita at Harvester Arts, they're fantastic because they care about planting seeds. And they are aware of the fact that there needs to be nurturing of that to grow into trees. So it's going to be very interesting to see what you do. Yeah, I'm curious about it. I want to say, though, you know, I'm not a better person than anybody else. And I want to be really careful about that. Um, I'm just curious about different stuff. 
And I always have been, and I don't know how to stop. So within that, right, I start to point out all these other different things to people, but it's because I just can't forget about those things or put them down. And I'm not doing it to prove anything about anybody and what they have or don't have access to, but just that no matter what, I'm always going to remember certain things about you, and I don't know why. It's great. And I think hopefully people who listen to this can hear themselves in what you just said. And that would be the best case scenario. I hope right? so too. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you, get to know you more. Thank you. Thanks, Clarity and Kate, for having us. This has been amazing. And um, I look forward to continuing this conversation in other forms. Be Very great. much likewise. Thank you. This episode of Magic Praxis was mixed by John Bender, who also does our music. Sign up for future episodes on iTunes or at magicpraxis.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.